power on. Now entering the gaming grid. The latest gaming news, reviews, and retro culture, as only the man of tomorrow can deliver. And here is your host, Brian Sovereign. The Man of Tomorrow is here for another, uh, well, I guess as we call these, a gaming grid special. Something that I am, uh, at least for right now, interspersing between releases of full-on Sovereign Tech episodes. Um, and a lot of these are, or not not a lot of them, actually, a couple of them are ones from, well, I guess a few years ago uh, that I think are worth an update in 2020, uh, where there are differences, and there often are. Um, but this is going to be a sovereign top eight where we go over, particularly with this one, the greatest GameCube games of all time. Now I've actually, this is one that I've recorded and I forget which order in which I've recorded these so far, but, uh, this is one that I've recorded really as part of a series where we're covering largely the sixth generation of video game consoles. So what that means is, is that, uh, I've recorded uh, one for the original Xbox, again, the original Xbox, as well as one for PlayStation 2. And I have one recorded for PlayStation 1. I got them all knocked out in a pretty short order. Uh, it's a lot of fun to go down, well, A, memory lane, but B, really to talk about games that are still, frankly, fucking awesome. Um, if a game is is a product of its time and it still doesn't really deliver today, I don't really want to put it on a top eight list. It needs to be something that you could still pick up and rock right now. Okay. Uh, I suppose at some point I could do one for the Atari 2800, but frankly, as much as I love that system and I do, uh, a lot of the games today, you know, are not ones that hold up. There are some that still do on the Atari 2800, like that really hold up really well. Uh, an example, Smurfs. And of course there are to this day, there are still games, still Atari 2800, uh, based games made. For example, there's an Atari 2800 version of, uh, of super Mario brothers. And guess what? It's fucking awesome. Obviously it wasn't made by Nintendo, but it plays as if they did, in my opinion. I mean, it's really, really brilliant. Uh, uh, how that was, how that was made. But anyway, actually, I think I covered that on a gaming grid on sovereign tech some years ago. But regardless, uh, so we have a bunch of these that, again, that will be released interspersed. Your main Sovereign Tech episodes, you know, will be will be coming out uh, as usual. We'll get you, you know, once a week. And but these are nice, fun additions for, frankly, right now, when let's just call it a lot of people are stuck at home. Um, I am concentrating at this stage on the sixth generation of consoles. And I'm releasing the Nintendo one first because the past two top eights that I've done over the past month or so have been Nintendo consoles. So we might as well round that out. Um, I'm concentrating on this because these are the consoles that even if they had internet connectivity, uh, it wasn't essential to the system, right? 
And that, I mean, granted with the 3DS, you could argue it was very essential. Um, the DS, it would kind of get there, but we talked about that when we, when we did a top eight for the Nintendo DS and DSiWare specifically. Um, but that's part of the real appeal. In my opinion, the, as we get into the sixth generation series, really of, of video game consoles, the sixth generation is when gaming became gaming that we understand it today in a very real way, right? Where, you know, consoles, even though PCs had been doing online multiplayer forever. And actually Sega previous Sega consoles had, I mean, all the way back to the Saturn and well, I mean, Sega channel doesn't really count, but anyway, and of course in Japan, we can talk about Famicom and talk about all kinds of things, but bottom line being is that, you know, while, while PC gaming and some other platforms, you know, had already had online multiplayer, the sixth generation of, of video game consoles is when that became more of a thing. For example, at the PlayStation 2, you would have SOCOM uh, for the GameCube, which we're going to talk about here. Probably the biggest use, and it was an add-on. You had to buy an add-on, uh, 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 you know, part, accessory, uh, was the modem for it. And probably Fantasy Star Online, which, of course, was originally a Dreamcast uh, a title, was probably the biggest, or, you know, the game that took the most advantage um, of that feature on the GameCube, but that's, but so everything that basically you imagine that a modern gaming console does today, largely started in the sixth generation. Uh, that said, I would also argue, and frankly, minus the online multiplayer, I would also argue that this is the, probably when video games, console gaming, I should say, uh, was also pun intended top of its game. Like this is to me, this is the pinnacle. This is as high as you get as much as I enjoy my Nintendo switch, as much as I enjoy my three DS, as much as I enjoy a modern gaming PC and whatever else I can be honest with myself and say that, no, the, not just what, you know, the, the processing power, not just how many polygons, you know, are in the games, not just the storage mediums, not, you know, not all the feature sets, whatever, you know, just the, the entire, I mean, those are part of it, but really the entire ethos, the entire ethos around the console, uh, was I think at, at its best, meaning that it created, dare I say, and, and of course health is subjective, but I would argue it created the healthiest gaming environment. Uh, you know, healthy for your mentality, even your physicality in many ways. Um, granted, it's not the Nintendo Wii, right? But, <laughs> but, but you get my point, or I hope you get my point, is that there was an entire culture and ethos around consoles at this time. And I think it was really at its best and most exciting at this time. Now, that's not, that's not you know, nostalgia lenses looking back, okay? And I can admit where things are better right? Or where things are more powerful, but being more powerful or more technologically advanced. And this is something people really need to get into their heads. And this goes far beyond gaming, but being more technologically advanced does not equate to better. Okay. If, if health is a subjective term, I assure you, so is advanced it can be a very subjective term and it does not necessarily mean better. And I mean, and, and to prove the point, Granted, you know, there's a cycle to these things, but the amount, the raw amount of games from the sixth generation 
that consistently get remastered and re-released today should really say something of just and because and the fact that they still get rave reviews and people still go nuts over them and whatever today, even without a lot of, shall we say, modern sensibilities, right? In our modern console generations. Um, I think that kind of proves my point at how much these games, again, do get re-released over and over and over again, or even like games in series that often started in the sixth generation of video game consoles, how they're still going. So there's really something to be said for that. And like I said, I, I stand by my statement without nostalgia goggles on that this was gaming at its best. I mean, to talk about the culture, you know, yeah, you still had kind of your, your fanboy thing going on at the time, but that basically got, in my opinion, a lot of the arguments that were being levied against other companies uh, really fell away ultimately in the sixth generation. This is when we realized that, okay, we have three companies. Granted, it was shocking at the time that one of them was Microsoft and not Sega. But we have three companies who are vying for some kind of dominance, but then they really didn't have, didn't have to vie for dominance. And, and this is an important point to actually bring up in this, in this episode is that this was also the first time that I can really think of now granted with Genesis and SNES PlayStation and N64, there were games that would get ported across consoles, right? Like you'd have, you know, and usually with the N64, they'd put the, the, you know, the moniker 64 at the end, or, you know, the suffix of 64 at the end of it, uh, as compared to what it would be called on the PlayStation. But this was, this is a video game console generation where yes, there were exclusives and obviously Nintendo would always have their exclusives and still does to this day. Uh, Sony does as well. Obviously. So does Microsoft, even though where that fits in with windows 10 is another story, but where a lot of the great games, just about everybody could play regardless of what console you had. If you had Xbox, PS2, or GameCube, because all of the, like everybody was just making games for, for each console. Now there's times, and this is going to, when we get into our list here for the GameCube, there are times where, you know, sometimes for the GameCube, because of the nature of the, the mini disc, uh, or mini DVD based format that the games were on is compared to a full size DVD that Xbox and PS2 would end up using, uh, that there would be features missing due to, you know, storage constraints. But also on the flip side, there are plenty of times where, because, and okay, I love the Duke and I don't mean, I mean, I love Duke Nukem too, but I love the Duke, which is the name of the, the bread box controller. <laughs> The, the massive controller that originally came with the Xbox until they came out the S controller, uh, which just meant smaller. <laughs> right. Uh, but I can admit that the GameCube has, if not the greatest, uh, controller of all time, probably in the top three of all time, but don't confuse me. I love the Duke and a classic dual shock two controller will do wonders for you today. I mean, the things have so many fucking buttons on them. I mean, you know, R3 and L3 and yeah, I mean, there's just, there's, there's ton. It's amazing. Okay. All great. I mean, that's another actually, you know, feather in the cap of the sixth generation of video game consoles is you probably had the greatest control schemes of all time across all of those consoles. I mean, every controller was fucking great. 
Uh, and if you even if you wanted to lump in, you know, the Dreamcast into this conversation, that had a great controller, actually a controller like with the VMU that had a lot of amazing features on it. Um, this is also a generation bringing up the Dreamcast that was able to take advantage of Sega opening up its library, meaning that Sega canceled the Dreamcast, right, ended it in 2001. And there were a lot of amazing Dreamcast games that would end up getting ported to either the PlayStation 2, uh, actually would also get, you know, ported to the Xbox, right, with, you know, things like Shenmue and so on, uh, and to the GameCube as well. So it was an amazing time, and, and that's also part of the strength, is that, well, yeah, we didn't have Sega there, but then Sega was releasing all of their games for all these other consoles, uh, and, and you know, that, that made for you didn't have to own Sega's console also, also to play some of their best games, right? Like, you know, the uh, most of the Sonic games would end up coming out for, you know, the PlayStation 2 and GameCube as well, really. Um, the other amazing thing that happened in the sixth generation of, cons uh, of consoles that we should bring up is that this is when, like, compilations of classic games, even of like arcade re-releases and all that would end up starting. And, and really, I mean, they would be on the PlayStation to some degree, but really once DVDs became a thing and you could put so much data, you know, onto, uh, onto the game disc now, uh, that opened up a lot of, a lot of possibilities. And this is the console generation where, and, and look, if you have a PlayStation two or even a GameCube with GameCube, a lot of these things exist as well. And with the GameCube, you have the easy built-in four ports, right? So that you can do four-player with an arcade game, a nice beat-em-up or something. But if you have a PS2, you know, or a GameCube or an Xbox at this, but really more PS2 and GameCube, if you have those things at this time, or, you know, like the amount of classic compilations that you can get, right? I mean, the Taito Legends compilations, the Midway Arcade Treasures compilations, the Capcom compilations and all this. Uh, I mean, you could have... With, you know, 10 discs, you could have 100 games. It's amazing, quite frankly. Um, and that also adds into the, the, the story or the narrative, I should say, that I'm giving you here of why the sixth generation was gaming at its absolute best. It was a peak for gaming. And that is, is that companies didn't really see they didn't, they were testing this out. They're like, well, we've got these games sitting around. Why don't we port them onto the PS2 or the GameCube and let's, you know, release 20 on one disc and put it out there. Okay, great. Game companies didn't realize how much people loved a lot of these classic games. Today, in the modern generation of consoles, Switch, PlayStation 4, and so on, and of course we have the, you know, PS5 and the new Xbox coming out very soon. Uh, in the modern generation, now they know, they know people love these classic games. And so they're not going to give you 20 games for 20 bucks. Oh, no, no. You're going to pay $8 a piece for something from the arcade archives for one game. Or you're going to pay 40 bucks for a collection of, I don't know, eight NES games or something. You know, and, and granted, the advantage today more so is that you'll get a lot of releases that were never released in the West, quote unquote, that they will, you know, translate and put onto, you know, modern compilations. And that's great. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to complain about that. But, you know, you certainly pay 10 times more than you used to for retro games on your modern console. 
as compared to, you know, the days of the GameCube and the PS2 when you'd get massive compilations that were just awesome. Like, I mean, frankly, if I was doing a top eight for the PS2 or a top eight for the GameCube, the Midway Arcade Treasures series, particularly, I want to say, volume two, could easily be the best game on there because it has Primal Rage, uh, has Mortal Kombat, most of the Mortal Kombat games on it, uh, you know, the arcade versions at that. It has San Francisco Rush 2049, which is arguably the greatest racer and racing battler game of all time. Just that's it. End of story. It's the best. And people still go nuts and are addicted to it when they play it to this day. Ellen and I play it. We, you know, we're, we're going for hours and she's laughing her ass off the whole time because that, that game, San Francisco Rush 2049 off of Midway Arcade Treasures is that damned good to this day. Right. So I could put that whole collection on here. You know, I mean, and that could take if you wanted to count them as one of, you know, volume one through three is a game of peace. I mean, they take the top three slots easy. Okay. But that just adds into the 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 aura and ethos of the sixth generation that that is what made it, frankly, just so great. And arguably for consoles, like I said, in my opinion, the greatest. So before we get into the top eight for the Nintendo GameCube, let's talk a little bit about the history of the GameCube. Um, This was a system that sold around 22 million units, frankly, had a probably the shortest. Well, no, I would say the Xbox had the shortest life of the bunch, but it had a very short life in comparison to other major consoles. Uh, I think we were talking when I did recently, I did a, a special about how to, you know, soft mod. Um, and burn games for a PlayStation 2 in 2020. Which is a great proposition, by the way. (laughs) Get ready for a great fucking time. Um, You know, we talked about how that console basically went for over a decade. You know, and new games were still getting made for it. it. It's remarkable, the PlayStation 2, no doubt about it. Uh, The life of the GameCube, much shorter, about six years. Now, six years for a little while seemed to be the average for a console generation, you know, before you end up getting, you know, a new console. Um, The GameCube, while it was not, I don't consider it a failure. I think it sold very well. We know it did around 22 million units, okay, which is certainly far better than the Wii U did. We don't need to talk about that and probably never will, or at least not for an entire special. I can't imagine doing that because a lot of games are getting ported from the Wii U onto the Switch today. And I think that only makes sense. I also know games are still getting released for the Wii U, right? Like Shakedown Hawaii, I understand that. But I'm fully supportive of games from the Wii U getting re-released on, on Switch because, I mean, we just know by the numbers that the Wii U did not sell well. The GameCube, I think, sold very well. Um, it was still a time where Nintendo thought that they were the driving force in gaming. That was not true in the sixth generation. Okay, I would not, I guess I could look at the numbers, whether or not the Xbox sold better uh, than the GameCube. But regardless, I think in most people's minds, the GameCube was the number two system of that era. PlayStation 2, clearly the number one. And I mean, the PlayStation 2, or the, the GameCube, I should say, did something very different from the others, where it really concentrated on just being great at making video games or, you know, being great at playing video games, I should say. And it sold at a significantly lower price point than its competition. It sold at $250 compared to, you know, 400 or whatever. 
And Nintendo did that on purpose because at the time, Nintendo's thought process, and I heard this basically from Nintendo employees' mouths back then, okay? It came out in 2001. Uh, of course, they were talking about it for a good year or two previous. But their idea was is that, okay, you're, you'll buy a PlayStation 2. You might buy an Xbox, but for damn sure, You'll buy one of those, but you're also going to own a GameCube. Basically, yeah, you can flirt with, with the other companies, but you're always going to buy a Nintendo console. That was their logic. That was their way of thinking. I think they learned differently with the GameCube. They learned that, oh, that's not exactly how things are going to work out. Now, in the handheld space, that was true. Like, you know, okay, not everybody's going to buy a GameCube, but yeah, probably a lot of people are going to buy a Game Boy Advance you know, or, or later on a DS or whatever. And, and that's why those systems, you know, just sold through the roof and why Sony tried to take a cut of it with the PSP and the Vita, of course, uh, they, they left that behind the GameCube speaking like the Wii U, how many of those games are getting ported? The GameCube was home to a lot of ports. And also a lot of those games have been ported as well. In fact, some of them to the Wii U, for example, the wind waker, which is actually not on this list. That's not to say that it couldn't be the legend of Zelda, the wind waker could definitely be on this list, but we'll talk about Zelda on the GameCube uh, later that, that that's a little bit of a se uh, separate conversation to have. Um, so it's a system that sold very well. It was not as powerful as its competition. It used the funny mini DVDs, right? They were like half the size of your average DVD reasoning behind this piracy. And, you know, frankly, just like trying to get a cut of, uh, I mean, look, Nintendo made a lot of money over the fact that they licensed and patented their cartridges before this. And if you wanted to develop a game for a Nintendo console, well, there was a fee to pay. You know, you had to pay, you had to buy into, um, you know, whatever format that Nintendo was using at the time, cartridge or optical or whatever. Uh, it's not uninteresting that, that the GameCube was Nintendo's first real foray, even though they had teased about it previously, but it was really their, their first mainstream foray, I guess I'll put it that way, into optical disc gaming. Um, it's interesting, and what's ironic is that they've left it again, right? With the Switch, they've gone back to cartridges, even though really now everything is ultimately a digital download, ultimately, in modern consoles. Um, you can buy a physical version. Sure. But are you, is that the latest version of the game? Does that have the latest patch on it? No. Will your system still download the latest patch? Yes. Even if you own it physically, sure. But then it doesn't write that patch to the cartridge. So ultimately all games are digital today. Uh, something that I, I really feel is a negative, but you know, there it is. Uh, at, at the time, this wasn't so much, uh, wasn't so much the case you know, with, with the sixth generation. Um, I mean, I think that to some degree, like SOCOM and some other multiplayer games would have some degree of patches. Uh, and there were ways that, uh, you know, Sony Xbox or, you know, Sony, Microsoft and Nintendo would update their systems, you know, by, by basically sneaking the firm, the system firm, the console firmware updates onto discs at, at varying times this is very interesting, but even beyond really the, you know, switching to optical discs. There are a lot of things that the GameCube really did to shatter uh, presuppositions about Nintendo consoles. Probably the biggest one that 
I think a lot of people even hold to this day, which is unbelievable that that's the case, but it is. Uh, the idea that Nintendo consoles are only for kids. Now, look, towards the end of the N64, I think Nintendo learned this lesson. You'd have Conker's Bad Fur Day. You, you know, you had adult games basically on the N64. Uh, the GameCube would waste no time in making sure you knew that this system was not, you know, not just for kids. Uh, also, interestingly, it is the first Nintendo console that I can think of where it did not have a Mario game at launch. It had Luigi's Mansion, which is a great game, by the way, also not on this list. Uh, very worthwhile, and actually the version for the 3DS is top-notch and definitely the best way to play, especially with 3D on. Um, but it was clearly Nintendo trying to do something different. I think they were, yes, they were pretending their competition in many ways didn't exist, but then at the same time, they were seeing what could we get away with? How can we differentiate this from what happened between PlayStation and N64? And I think not launching with a Mario game, while people see that as a failure, I think that was a bold move because it was Nintendo saying, no, this isn't what we rely on. You know, we can make great games beyond that. Now, the best game in GameCube's launch uh, launch titles, not uninterestingly, and this is something that clearly, and I've talked about this before, where it pushed a lot of N64s, was a Star Wars game. Um, for the N64, I mean, Shadows of the Empire, uh, Racer, Rogue Squadron, you know, I mean, like those, even Battle for Naboo, even though most people don't remember that game. But those games, especially those three, moved a lot of N64s. I mean, it, they sold because, you know, with, with those games, that was a winning, winning proposition. Uh, particularly Shadows of the Empire. I think people forget just how huge of a game that was. I mean, that, that was a big fucking deal. Everybody was, was playing that. Everybody, I mean, I just remembered the schoolyard. Everybody talking about it. That was the game of games. They were talking about that as much as they were talking about Mario 64. So I think Nintendo was right, frankly, to feel confident in trying something a little bit different because they knew they had something that next to their first party titles was clearly their bestseller on the N64. They had a great Star Wars game to, to you know, to line, to start the whole system off with. And we could actually start off the top eight list with that. So, I mean, let, let's, let's get into this top eight. Um, at the end of this, I want to talk about how, you know, what are the best ways to experience the GameCube right now? And we will get into that. We will talk about differing things, emulators and hardware and so on. Okay. That's a conversation to have. So we'll get into that. So get excited because these are the games that you are definitely going to want to play when you make that happen. Okay, I'm not going to give you a whole tutorial here on how to do it, but I'm going to tell you what's out there and what you can do. Um, so, yeah, let's start it off with number one. And in fact, I think it's fair enough. There's only one other game that came out for the N64 uh, that would vie for taking this game out of the number one spot, because I'm going to give you a top eight here, but they're not necessarily in any real order. I mean, if they're in the top eight, they're, they might as well all be number one, right? Because they're all great. But if I were to give you a top game... Um, the game that made me buy the system. And in fact, with the GameCube, how I bought it, I guess we could talk about that. But the game that made me buy it was Rogues with Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2 
Rogue Leader. Long name, long game, great results, top-notch, a game still gorgeous today when you play it, when you hook it up. And a game that was notoriously, along with its sequel, it also had Rogue Squadron 3, which was called Rebel Strike. And uh, I don't know if I want to call it equally great game. I, I'll say it's equally great. I, I thought that that game was still fucking awesome. I, I thought both of them were just, just pure dynamite. Um, this, These games, when you play them, I mean, they still look that good, but they are notoriously, they have been notoriously hard to get to work on emulators. This is one of these games are the reason I still have a GameCube because, you know, and, and I have the actual original discs for both of these games. In fact, they're the only two games that I have the original discs for uh, because, you know, they're just, they're that important. They're that much fun. They're that great to play. And that is no small feat to make a great you know, these are basically Star Wars space battle games, even though Rebel Strike would try to be a little bit more and add in some varying mission types. Rebel Strike would actually play a lot more uh, like the uh, Rebel Assault games where you had a lot of different types of missions, right? And for whatever reason, I love the Rebel Assault formula. I don't know why uh, people malign those games because I think they're fucking brilliant. And I thought Rebel Strike was brilliant for trying to live up to that. It's like, yeah, bring in that formula. That's a that's a winner. I I, I don't get people's problem with it, but whatever. Uh, most people don't have a problem with Rogue Leader. They recognize it as, if not the greatest GameCube game of all time, certainly one of the greatest games of all time, bar none. Definitely belongs in any, you know, if you talk about the long history of Star Wars video games, easily belongs in the top five, I think, uh, even just for its historical precedence. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's it's just a top-notch game. Um, building off of the sequel of a multi-million seller from the N64. But again, with the GameCube's horsepower, somehow this game, I, I almost want to say that I think this is the most gorgeous game in the entire sixth generation of video game consoles. Even though the GameCube is not as powerful as the PS2, not as powerful as the original Xbox, this game takes the cake as far as just pure beauty. I mean, when you're flying a B-Wing over a lake or an ocean, holy shit. I mean, it's just stunning when you look at it. Uh, a lot of the, there's a lot of a lot of secrets and cheats in it and everything you can unlock, like an old uh, uh, Buick, I think, and fly that around. That's a lot of fun. You can unlock the, uh, the Naboo Starfighter, the N1 Naboo Starfighter. Uh, there's just, there's a lot of really cool things that you can unlock within the game with either cheat codes or, you know, just from playing it, whatever. And that adds a lot of flair to it at a time when, you know, a lot of these elements within star Wars games didn't exist. You know, we didn't have the battlefronts where they fucking just toss everything into it, you know? Uh, so rogue leader, um, again, it, they needed this game at launch because a, it's a star Wars game, which did well for the N64 B it shows, hey, you think we're not as powerful as the other two guys out there? Doesn't really matter because this game's beautiful. It had that. And it had, I mean, it just had really solid gameplay. You know, each system in the sixth generation would kind of get their 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 Star Wars exclusives, okay? Um, like the Xbox would get a, a great version of, um, of Starfighter, of Star Wars Starfighter with the N1. They got the special edition of that. Um, they even got, even though it wasn't a great game, they got Obi-Wan on the Xbox, right? 
uh, PlayStation 2 would get its share. And GameCube certainly had other Star Wars games as well, but I mean, none of them lived up to this. And I'm sure there's a story around how the, the was it Factor 5, the, the development company that made these games went under, but damn, what a shame, because I would be playing Rogue Squadron 6 or 7 or 8 today with glee, with absolute glee. Uh, I think the, these games are just are, are top notch. It belongs in any conversation around the GameCube are, you know, is the, the Rogue Squadron games that were available for it. Uh, so to, total winner there. I mean, even though you're playing through, at least at first, you're playing through, you know, the Battle of Yavin and destroying the Death Star and all this, you get past a lot of that quickly. And there's even like little side missions that you can do as long as you, you know, unlock everything right. It's it's really, really a slick game. Um, so let's move on that. There's our, I guess that's technically our number one. And so it's all downhill from here. No, <laughs> but there's plenty to talk about. Um, why don't I go ahead and get into the game that I think could almost unseat rogue leader. And that is a game that was not originally for the GameCube. It was originally for the dreamcast, but when Sega went under, like I said, they started porting their games to other consoles of its day. And, you know, you'd get Sonic Adventure uh, 1 and 2. You'd get those for both PlayStation 2. You'd get them for GameCube. You'd get all kinds of, I mean, it's, boy, talk about compilations. The Sonic Gems compilations that came out uh, for for GameCube and, the, and some other systems. Amazing. You know, what, what a great time to be video gaming, you know, then. But anyway, Skies of Arcadia for the Dreamcast. This was Sega's real original answer to final fantasy. Okay. Yeah. They had fantasy star, but they're going different directions with that. How do we make this amazing RPG experience? That's offline. You know, again, Sega, I mean, you got to give Sega credit, especially with the dreamcast. They experimented the fuck out of that thing. I mean, they, they really, really did. And, and the gaming, you know, gaming consoles are all winners because of what, Dreamcast or, or have all taken advantage of, I guess, I guess I should say have all taken advantage of what Dreamcast really trailblazed, you know, and experimented with perhaps to its detriment, you know, be it whatever cost to produce the stuff and whatever. But anyway, Sega wanted to best, it seems pretty clear. They wanted to best Final Fantasy. They wanted to best, you know, all of these massive RPGs, your Dragon Quests and whatever else. And with Skies of Arcadia, I'd say they just about did it. I mean, they sure as hell did it better when the, than when they tried to make, uh, what was it, Virtual Quest? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they certainly did a much better job. Uh, this is one of the, you know, if we talk about, say, like top 10 Sega games ever made, I think this could easily sit in that number. Um, it was, so originally it was just called Skies of Arcadia for the Dreamcast. It would end up being called Skies of Arcadia Legends, and the Legends moniker basically just meant that it was a director's cut of the original version. And they would add in different things and they tried to balance some stuff or whatever. And it ended up being, it really is worthwhile. And I think it is the best way to play the game, even though you don't get the nice VMU games from the Dreamcast. Uh, but it, it's a brilliant story. I mean, you know what epic, epic RPGs are about. You don't need me to tell you the, the whole story of the thing, but it's a fantastic story. Uh, easily sits up there with, you know, with Final Fantasy, Rogue Galaxy, Dragon Quest, go down the list of the JRPG. It belongs in that number. I don't know why there hasn't really been a sequel. 
I don't want to hear any bullshit about a spiritual successor. I want a goddamn sequel. Uh, it was originally being ported to the PlayStation 2 as well as Windows in 2002. And Sega canceled both of those. And they only released it on GameCube. So basically, the only way to play this is via GameCube or GameCube emulation of some kind. Um, just a brilliant game. And I mean, you are in for many, many hours. You know, it's, it's a long game, uh, but a tremendous story. It'd be fun for me to do like my top eight RPGs at some point. Um, this one would probably sit in the top three on that, you know, it'd be around radiant historia and maybe dragon quest five and some others, but it'd be in there. Uh, it's, it's, you know, and I know, look, there's, there's JRPG. I mean, because you had the fire emblem games come out for GameCube. You had a lot of great JRPGs take advantage of the GameCube. And amazingly that got released in the West, right. That got released in America. But this is the best one, in my opinion. If you can only play one RPG on the GameCube, this is the one you want. So jump on that. Skies of Arcadia Legends. We'll put that at number two. Uh, let's go to number three. Number three, you know, it wasn't a launch title. But even though it wasn't a launch title, that, and even though it wasn't exactly super innovative, like it didn't stray too much from its predecessor's formula, I still think it's a great game and might actually get a re-released re-release this year in 2020 on the Nintendo switch. And we are talking about the game that I think everybody there that a lot of people, yes, they did want it at launch and they wanted a Mario game, but they didn't get it. But when they got it, reviews were strangely mixed. Um, I can't help but think that if it was released, if it was a launch title that the reviews would have been through the roof. Uh, but this is effectively the sequel to Mario 64, and that is Super Mario Sunshine, uh, a game that is kind of notorious for, well, here, th this is something to understand. It's notorious, I think, for its, its problematic or troublesome camera. The GameCube controller, and this is going to be important later on in this list as well, the GameCube controller had a very unique you know, it didn't copy the dual stick nature of say, you know, the bread box controller or of the PS2, uh, you know, dual shock two controller, but it did have twin sticks. The second stick was not directional. This, I mean, or not like just a, a you know, a, an analog version of a D pad. The second stick was a C button or a C stick, which allowed you to control the camera. It was specifically for the camera. This was a very big deal. And I think a brilliant innovation on Nintendo's parts, Nintendo's part now. And I'll talk about that more again, as we go down this list, even with that C stick, which I think they, they put in there in response to perhaps problematic cameras with Mario 64, which was a thing which got fixed in the DS version, by the way, Mario 64 DS largely, but. I get where people complained about it. The reason why people didn't take marks off of the camera for Mario 64 is because it was such a mind blowing game at the time that, you know, the negatives did not weigh shit. You know, they could not weigh the positives. As to where Super Mario Sunshine, people weren't as uh, uh, forgiving perhaps, or they weren't willing to look certain things over. Um, 
you know, being able to like spray everything down and clean up the town and a lot of that. I mean, I thought that that was, that was really cool. And, you know, fly around with the, with your backpack, uh, with your soaking backpack, uh, that, that was, I mean, really, really cool stuff. I, I think it's a great game. Uh, I think it belongs absolutely in the top eight. Um, this is the rare occasion and this might be controversial for me to say, but I think that this is the rare occasion where the Mario game is actually better than the Zelda game on a Nintendo console. Most of the time, in my opinion, Zelda games just wipe the floor with every other franchise, except for maybe Metroid, wipe the floor with every other franchise on a Nintendo console. This is, this the GameCube has the distinction in my mind where the Mario games are far better than the still genuinely great Zelda games that exist on, on GameCube. And it is games plural, by the way, for, for the GameCube. Most people forget um, that Twilight, like Twilight Princess, was a was a GameCube game. In fact, it was originally being developed for the GameCube, and then, or as I understand it, of course, then it would be on the Wii and whatever. And anyway, so Super Mario Sunshine, I mean, I think it's that good. It's just, it's basically an improvement, not an innovation, but an improvement on the formula of Mario 64. And especially when you look at it in that light, you really see its brilliance. Um, and I look forward to, if it is getting re-released for the Switch, I'm there. I'm ready for that. Uh, because it's a game whose time has really come and I think deserves a good second uh, you know, second round, a second playing. And again, like I said, I think if it was a launch title, people would think about it very differently today. It would be ranked right up there with the best Mario games. Um, you know, because afterwards... I mean, Nintendo has really, frankly, played it safe. They've made sure that there's always a Mario starring Mario game at launch, you know, ready to go. Uh, because I, well, I guess they, they feel like they got flack for this. I, again, I thought it was the right move that they made. I thought that trying to, you know, shake things up, make people wait for the Mario game, just like they do for Zelda games, right? Zelda games usually aren't launched. Usually, I mean, that's not always true, but usually aren't launch games either. Because at the time, you know, if people had to wait five, six years for a Zelda game, they'll wait. Because Nintendo knows when it comes out, if you don't have the Nintendo console, you're going to fucking get it. And so trying to play off of that same theory with, with Mario, you know, I, I don't think was out. I don't think that was crazy of them to do. Like, and I don't think it was wrong of them to do. But again, I think people would have would have felt very differently about it uh, if it was a launch title. I think people would still be talking about it again very glowingly as compared to now. I mean, now, you know, in hindsight, people like it. Right. But at the time, certainly there, you know, it, it had plenty of uh, plenty of criticism. Anyway, let's move on from number three. Let's get into number four. Now, you know, it's funny because I have <laughs> I actually have more than eight games here listed. And not because I don't know what my top eight is, but the, the hard part with Nintendo consoles is that, you know, there's certain games you come to expect from, from Nintendo when it cut right. Like you're going to get a Mario Kart game. Like Double Dash could be on this list. Double Dash is great. I mean, Ellen and I, we, we play the fuck out of that game still. Um, there, there's, there's, you know, lots of, of game series where like a Mario Party or something like that where, you know, I mean, they could, they could fill up the top eight on their own. And I don't really want to have that here. And basically number four that I have written down is super smash brothers melee. 
This is when the really the Super Smash Brothers craze takes off. Okay, as to where now, you know, they're like the biggest games, whatever, whenever they come out for a Nintendo console. Even though it'll be interesting to see because the creator of Super Smash Brothers, the you know, and the main developer, he has basically come out and said that, like, I'm never going to make another roster like I did for the Nintendo Switch. So we'll see what Smash Brothers games end up looking like in the future. But anyway, um, Melee really, really perfected the formula. And in fact, to this day, people mod Wii's and GameCube's to play the latest versions because there's a whole homebrew scene around Super Smash Brothers Melee. So that they can play those latest versions of Smash Brothers Melee. Um, I mean, that's how great this game is. So I don't, I don't really want to put it at number four though. I want something a little more rare. Everybody expects this game to be on there, right? Um, I don't mind doing ones that you expect, but I like to give you some stuff that you might not have thought about or that you might've missed. And so I'm actually going to put another launch title on here. The launch again, the launch titles for the GameCube were great. They really were. I, I mean, it's hilarious that you get commentators, even to this day, who say that the GameCube didn't have a great launch lineup. You're full of shit. Luigi's Mansion's awesome. Rogue Leader's awesome. This game, I think, was awesome as well. And it often gets forgotten. Uh, and it's a, actually, it's a game series I wish they would pick the fuck back up. Um, and that's Wave Race Blue Storm. Wave Race was a huge game on the Nintendo 64. Uh, massive seller. And a great tech demo in many ways for 3D gaming. Uh, Blue Storm, much like Super Mario Sunshine, you know, basically prettied up the Mario 64 formula. I feel like Blue Storm prettied up much of Wave Race. And I think when it came out, a lot of people probably looked at it then and said, well, there's no real argument to buy this if you bought Wave Race. It doesn't add that much to the formula. Again, part of my criteria here is different than I think how most people think of a top eight list for uh, for consoles, because I am doing these top eights with the mindset that these consoles can still be played, are still worth playing, and in fact, might be worth playing for the next 20, 30 years. Much like people still play, you know, Atari 7800, NES, and whatever else. So this is a game that has staying power, plays beautifully today, plays beautifully, and is probably the best jet ski game maybe one of the best water-based games, water racing games, we'll say, next to Hydro Thunder, which you can also play on the GameCube in the Midway Arcade Treasures Volume 2, by the way, and I totally recommend. Um, I mean, I, I still think it's better, as much as I love the, the Riptide GP games that are modern, that are a big deal on, you know, mobile platforms as well as on consoles and PC, uh, I, think, I think Blue Storm beats out uh, the Riptide games by a long shot. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's another one of those games. That's just gorgeous. It took advantage of what power the GameCube did have. And like rogue leader, uh, took it as far as it can go. And in presentation, even if other consoles were more powerful in presentation, this looks better, right. Than what the competition was doing. So I think wave race, blue storm gets kind of ignored. And, it, and much like, it's interesting to think about this because like F-Zero, right? So the GameCube also had F-Zero GX, which could be on, you know, could have been on this list. That's like the last F-Zero game that we've gotten. Could we at least get a re-release, you know? <laughs> and I feel like Blue Storm is the same deal. 
I mean, because there's a Wave Race game for GameCube. It's not like it's there's only a couple games out there. You know, it is a something that had a bit of a series to it. Uh, boy, playing Wave Race on a Game Boy though that's a that's a weird thing. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, but Blue Storm, I I wish they would pick up the Wave Race series series again. I think it's a lot of fun, just like Excite Bike. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, it has nice arcadey, simple feel to it. But when it's done right and with great Nintendo controls, uh, you know, no one else can beat them. No one else can match what, what Nintendo does here. So at number four, I'm going to put Wave Race Blue Storm. Let's get to number five. Number five was really the first game. This is also part of that launch lineup. This is the first game, I think, that proved uh, Nintendo isn't just for kids anymore. We're going to please, you know, we're going to please and appease the adults. And this game is Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem, a game that has a very Lovecraftian style, I would say. You play a lot of different characters in it, coming from different walks of life. Like there's a firefighter, there's like this Cambodian slave, um, whatever, and you have to you know play each one differently. Um, it's a game that the style of it and what it brings to the table, I've never really seen anywhere else because it's a game that fucks with your head, like your head, the game player where, you know, yeah, like the monsters and the traps and all that stuff. Okay. Maybe not as terrifying as resident evil or whatever. We're going to talk about that on the GameCube, but you know, might not be that terrifying or whatever. But the thing is, is that, you know, like there's a time where you you'll enter a room and just suddenly you'll be decapitated and you think the game's over and you're like, Oh, what the fuck? Next thing you know, you're just, you, you reappear in like a hallway that you were just in a few seconds later and your head is attached. You're like, wait, what just happened? Or um, the game, you got to understand this. And I know I've talked about Eternal Darkness before because I really think it's such a brilliant game, the way that it fucks with your the game player's head in the real world. The game will bring up a message that says, oh, you know, you're, you, the, the controller disconnected, you're screwed, you're going to have to restart the game or whatever. Now, you don't really have to do that. And you think it's an error message from the GameCube. No, it's the game messing with your head because the game has like an actual sanity meter in it. Oh man, what just, what a genius game. I mean, and, and only scary, I'll tell you, it is scary. I remember playing it like late at night, you know, we're talking like 3 a.m., right? Playing it at 3 a.m. And, you know, then some of that wacky shit happens where like, it'll say your save game was fucked or something like that. And I mean, and then when you realize what's going on, it messes with you a little bit. And I know there was a moment similar, like in Metal Gear Solid, right? where I think the Colonel just starts talking to you. Like he says like, yeah, no, you sitting in the couch, what are you doing? Right. You know? And, and I love it when it does that. Um, just like there's a game Omicron for the dreamcast. And also I think you can get it now. I think you can get it on PC now, but Omicron, which was actually a game starring David Bowie of all things. That was a game where it was self-aware that you were the game player and you were controlling what was happening on the screen. And that that's how you were experiencing the game. I love it when games break the fourth wall like that. And that, that doesn't get done enough. Uh, like little, even Easter egg versions of that, like in metal gear solid, it just does not happen enough. Uh, but eternal darkness definitely took it. Uh, I think is, is to the heights of that, you know, where you could go with that. So that's a number five. Uh, let's keep going through this. Number six, number six is where, this is the greatest Zelda game that's not a Zelda game. 
But it also happens to be part of what could be argued the greatest fighting game series of all time. No, not Street Fighter. Uh, <laughs> but, or Mortal Kombat, for that matter. Um, Soul Calibur 2. Definitely, I mean, highly anticipated game. Like I said, this the sixth generation of consoles was a time where game companies, game, game developers were willing to, you know, port their games to every system. I mean, that, that, that's become, you know, par for the course today. But at the time, that was somewhat revolutionary, you know, as to where there were really a lot of exclusives and things like this that would happen, and part of that came from Nintendo or Sega strong-arming. Uh, now, the game developers were having fun with this. With Soul Calibur, made by Namco, of course, who also make the Tekken series, tremendous series, they said, you know what, for each system, let's give each system a unique, one unique uh, a character that could be in the fighting game. So, for example, with Soul Calibur 2, you had, uh, for PlayStation 2, which was the home, you know, PlayStation's the home of Tekken, they put in Hihachi. Great choice. For Xbox, I think they put in Spawn, you know, the comic book character. Fine choice. But for, <laughs> for GameCube, and, and I, I mean, I can't tell you how excited people were for this. For GameCube, they put Link from Zelda in it. And, I mean, everybody, as great as Hihachi is or that Spawn was, and it was cool to play Spawn on Xbox, by the way. As great as that was, you knew you wanted to play Link because, you know, no pun intended, Link was a fucking legend, Right. And to have the Master Sword and your shield and everything and to go to business, because that's the beauty of the Soul Calibur series or the Soul series, which started off with uh, Soul Blade or Soul Edge, depending where you played it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's basically Tekken with weapons, right? It's 3D fighting with weapons, and it does it so well. Uh, these are gorgeous games. Uh, probably my favorite fighting game series. I mean, it, it's right up there with Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, and so on. Certainly the original Soul Blade is. Um, but Soul Calibur 2, getting to play as Link, yeah, baby. I mean, everybody was all over that. I guarantee you that sold a lot of GameCubes because people just wanted to play as Link. It was that exciting. I would, you know, if you wanted to count it as a Zelda game, it's easily the best Zelda game on the GameCube. Look, I like Wind Waker fine. I think Twilight Princess is brilliant, and I wouldn't mind a re-release, okay? But... You know, comparing, putting it down, this was genius. In fact, I think I heard uh, Mike Matei saying something about, oh, you know, I feel like when they, when they make Zelda games that are, like, not the Zelda formula, that, like, say, like, Hyrule Warriors or something like that, that somehow that waters down uh, the Zelda franchise. No. <laughs> I mean... I kind of get where he's coming from, but Soul Calibur 2 does not fall prey to that. If anything, that just bolstered Zelda's uh, prominence in gaming. And like I said, I think it's the best Zelda game on the GameCube. Easily. It's one of the best Zelda games of all time. It's a great fighting game as well. You know, it's definitely one of the best Soul Calibur uh, games in the Soul series. Uh, I, I just love it. And I mean, and there's plenty more to love about it, right? I mean, you know, you have Maxi, you have Ivy. I mean, you have tons of great characters uh, that enter into it. Great storylines and everything. But being able to play Link as a fighter, you know, the way you've wanted to experience Link for a long time, even though you kind of got to do that 
certainly in Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, and so on. This was it. Awesome. So, again, we'll talk about some Zelda games here in a minute. But moving on, so that's at my number six, Soul Calibur 2, or really call it like Legend of Zelda Soul Calibur. <laughs> that, that should be its name. Uh, just fucking brilliant. At number seven, we've got to talk about the Resident Evil. Actually, I hate that phrase. I hate saying we've got to talk about. I hate it. I really, I, I hate it when like media outlets do that. But whatever. It is important to get in the discussion around Resident Evil. We, we've got to talk about, there I'm saying it again, but whatever, we're doing it. we got to talk about Resident Evil. The Resident Evil series on GameCube was a surprise for a lot of people. It was an exclusive at the time. For that entire generation of consoles, it was an exclusive. It was not something that was a timed exclusive. It was meant to be there and only there for GameCube. Um, after the sixth generation of consoles went away, uh, it would end up, you know, and, and certainly like when the Wii got popular or whatever. But anyway, once the GameCube, that exclusivity was done, now the, these Resident Evil remakes, which most of them were, were remakes of previous, you know, entries, um, have been released on every fucking system out there. And you can even get them on the Switch, they're on PC, they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're everywhere. This was, a, this was a massive deal for Nintendo. Uh, to again, more of that proving and it's not Nintendo's not just for kids anymore. So you're proving that point, but these were great looking games, uh, resident evil, uh, zero, you know, also, I mean, you've got bonus games into the series. I mean, there, and resident evil four was originally made for, uh, for the GameCube. I mean, and you know, came out, was released to rave reviews would really get perfected on the Wii in my opinion. But, you know, it was a, it was a really big deal when it came out on the, you know, on the GameCube. Um, so you had basically the entire Resident Evil series get re-released on GameCube. What were originally more PlayStation exclusives to some degree. I mean, minus Resident Evil 2 that came out on the, on the N64, which is remarkable in its own right for, you know, from a technical perspective. But every single one of these games is great. And this is one, this is a game series where the camera stick, the exclusive camera stick on the GameCube controller was a winner. Okay. Now, I guess I'll take this opportunity because it will lead into, I mean, you know, Resident Evil, you know about it, but it's got to be on this list because again, this is when these games first came out and a lot of like there became a Resident Evil style that came out of what Capcom was doing on the GameCube. And once again, it, I mean, we'll, we'll, I want to talk about the C-Stick, but once again, the GameCube proved you don't have, and I think Nintendo has been running with this fact for a while, you don't have to have the most horsepower under the hood on your console. You just have to use what's there right. You have to use it right because many of the game games that originally only came out for the GameCube or to this day are only on the GameCube are still some of the most to this day, 20 years later, almost 20 years later are still the most gorgeous video games ever made. Some of the most gorgeous video games ever made. I would argue that much of the resident evil series that was originally came out that originally came out for the GameCube or was you know remastered for the GameCube fits into that mold. Um, I think also, I think Resident Evil, the remake of Resident Evil was the first 
two disc game for for the GameCube, which there's something to be said for that because again they used mini DVDs, uh, so you know you couldn't fit as much as you would say on you know on a PlayStation Two or an Xbox, but it worked. It was there, and you know I don't think anybody had a problem with it. If anything, they thought it was really cool because you know double disc games were rare on the PlayStation Two and were something that gave you at least the perception with the original PlayStation, with the PlayStation one, it gave you the perception that you were getting more bang for your buck, right? If you spent 40 bucks on a single disc game, when you spent 40 bucks on a two to four disc game, it felt like you were getting more game. And I think that was true also for the GameCube. Now to talk about the C stick, because this will lead into number eight on our list to round out our list here. So number seven is the resident evil series. It's not that because you can say, well, you could use the, the, you know, the R stick on a DualShock 2 controller as a camera stick. What's the big deal? The big deal was, again, it was a dedicated, on the GameCube controller, it was a dedicated camera stick. It was a dedicated camera direction, you know, uh, not button, but stick. We'll, We'll just say that. It had grooves, you understand. It had grooves like a, um, what's the shape? Not, not, I I guess octagon, maybe it was. It had grooves that made the camera movements not as like laissez-faire or free-flowing, which I would argue there there is a little bit of a problem with that. Okay, you want some kind of like tactile feel of where the camera is going. That's what made the C-Stick such a powerful element on the GameCube controller, is that it... It, again, it wasn't just free flowing. You had like a place where you could shove it, you know, into this notch, um, you know, on the GameCube controller that would force the camera basically into place. You could get free form with it if you wanted and not take advantage of the very specific notches, the angles that surrounded the C-stick on the GameCube controller. My point being is that this allowed for the best control of its day for 3D gaming. Nintendo was a genius for including this and for implementing this into their, uh, you know, into the GameCube because they knew that, okay, here it is. 3D gaming is a thing. You know, it wasn't a question anymore. I mean, with N64, certainly they were going that direction anyway. But now, like, no, 3D gaming is the standard. 2D is like, oh, well, that's nice. So I, I think this is just a winning idea. Now, let's get to, and, and it really helped with Resident Evil, which, you know, the control scheme on Resident Evil, def, and I think really, in many ways, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of money that changed hands between the ex, with the exclusivity deal. I think Capcom probably got convinced that GameCube was the best home for the Resident Evil series, partly because of that, that specific camera stick on the controller. Because that made the controls, even now, I think it's the best way to control the Resident Evil games, minus Resident Evil 4, which did really well with the Wiimote. I, and I, I mean, I'm not going to argue against that. So that said, number eight, I know you're expecting it to be Metroid Prime. Look, Metroid Prime, that game series is, you know, talk about legendary. It's legendary. It deserves to be on any list. No argument for me on that. But like I said, I want to give you something a little bit different. Now, as we talked about during this special, you have um, 
you know, a lot of game series, a lot of games that came out at the time basically came out for every system. You know, many of them from third parties would just end up coming out for, okay, you know, yeah, GameCube has Mario, but every system's going to have Spy Hunter or every system's going to have, you, you know, just take your pick of the game. Um, I feel like most of the time, those third-party games, like, for example, Spy Hunter, were actually far better on Xbox or PS2. There is one game that came out at the time, which is one of my favorite games from that console generation, that I think objectively plays better on GameCube than it does on any other system. And it has to do with the C-Stick where it shows just how brilliant of an idea that was because on the other systems, PS2 and Xbox, the camera controls were a rampant problem with the game. In the game I'm, I'm putting at number eight is Enter the Matrix. This also happens to be a double disc game, uh, like Resident Evil, like the first Resident Evil. It's not a double disc game on any other system, but it is for the GameCube. Um, a lot of people, I mean, this was a genius move of a game. It played into, it had full motion video. Like they used budgets that were part of, you know, the Wachowskis used budgets for it that were part of the Matrix sequels, right? Uh, Reloaded and Revolutions, which I love both of those movies. The game ties in with Reloaded very tightly to the point that to really understand everything going on in Reloaded, you basically have to play enter the matrix. Now it's not uninteresting that every box set release of the matrix trilogy that has come out since the DVDs has included all of the cutscenes from enter the matrix. Why? Because they're important to the, to the story. So you get to play ghost and Niobe in this game. It plays kind of like a tomb Raider. You know, I mean, it, like in that third person shooter sort of perspective. Okay. It's somewhat standard fare as far as the gameplay. I mean, it has bullet time in it, which at, at the time was a big deal in gaming, right? Like with Max Payne was a big deal in movies because, woo, that's different. You know, I mean, that was a part of it. Slowing things down was a part of it. There are interesting things that they implemented into the game, but Overall, I mean, it, it, the real winning strategy here was the fact that you were in the Matrix. And of course, the full motion video really helped out with that. If you wanted to argue that this is the greatest full motion video game ever made, I wouldn't argue against it too much. I mean, we could certainly talk about Wing Commander 4 or Night Trap, but whatever, you know, enter the Matrix, I would really get it. It's certainly the culmination of that style of gameplay or of that, that, that element being introduced into games. In fact, as far as importance goes, I think the only other game that I could compare it to would be X-Files for PlayStation one where, yeah, it was written by Chris Carter. Like it was, you know, it was a, it was an X-Files episode uh, and it had everybody in it, you know, and it, it really meant something. Enter the matrix meant something. The argument or where this game would get uh, points taken off for it, and you got to understand, first off, it's amazing that it was even looked at positively because video game movies usually at this time still were not. Uh, usually video game movies were considered just cheap tie-ins and didn't really matter and, you know, were just basically cash grabs. 
Enter the Matrix, like I said, it mattered, okay? But what people would often argue about is, well, the camera's kind of wonky and you could end up doing weird things or, you know, your character would end up walking through a wall, which frankly I think is a feature, not a bug in the Matrix. But okay, you know, I get that argument. But the camera problem was, in my opinion, completely solved or largely solved in the GameCube version of the game because you had such a tightly precision or tightly controlled and precision, same thing, C-stick, camera stick that was specifically designed to control the camera and that you could, again, you could force it into a corner and it would stay there and you'd have tactile confirmation of what the camera was doing with the GameCube controller. And so I think this is the, and I'll admit it, it's a rare case, but this is a case where a game that existed on all consoles was at its best on GameCube. And so I think for that distinction alone, it really deserves to be on the top eight. And also I'm just, I'm not going to include it on like the PS2 list. I'm not going to include it on the Xbox list, but I think it is one of the greatest games of that console generation. And it needs, you know, it needs to get included somewhere and why not include it where, you know, it shows or it gives the, yeah, it shows the strengths that the GameCube really had. So my number eight, is enter the matrix and and really it's there for that dedicated camera stick that was just a brilliant brilliant move um there's lots more we could talk about the pikmin games you know i mean it's basically a real-time strategy designed by uh, uh shigeru miyamoto how do you, how can you go wrong with that you can't uh brilliant games lots of fun very cute but hot damn is it a lot of fun um you know we could talk about well we, i mean i already brought up metroid prime uh, Animal Crossing started on GameCube. Now, you know, one of the biggest franchises in the world. Uh, there, there are quite a few franchises that really got their start, more or less, uh, on GameCube. We could get, I mean, we didn't even get into any of the Kirby games that are on Game, GameCube. We didn't get into Paper Mario uh, or the Pokemon games that were, I mean, that, that they've basically been re-released, but there's so much that was on the GameCube. We didn't even, we didn't talk about you know, how you could, you had the GBA link, right? Where you could use a Game Boy Advance as a controller and, and much like the VMU worked with the Dreamcast where you had like a second screen, you could use it as a second screen or it could do unique things, right? Um, in games like Wind Waker and, and, and so on, or, or Four Swords, um, was it, yeah, was it Four Swords Adventures for, uh, for GameCube where you could do interesting things with it. Um, that was a really cool concept. Um, we didn't get into Donkey Konga where you literally had, you know, bongo controllers. Um, I thought that was a genius move. You know, it doesn't have, it's not going to scale well, but, but it was a nice move. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of, of moments like that or game series that got their start on GameCube and were brilliant on GameCube. Um, but everybody talks about those. A lot of these games, I mean, yeah, they talk about them too, but a lot of these games, I really, I think don't get touched on enough, you know, or don't get, don't get the light shined on them that I think they really deserve like super Mario sunshine, no pun intended there. Um, with legend of Zelda again, Zelda, I would kind of argue really had its weakest showing of, any Nintendo console on the GameCube. That's not to say that there weren't great options for Zelda on the GameCube. 
For example, when the silver edition of the GameCube came out, you could get, or it came with a bonus disc that had all previous Zelda games on it that you could play on the GameCube. That was a very nice inclusion and that was great and speaks more to how like, you know, this idea of game compilations really came to head in and started with the uh, uh, sixth generation consoles. Um, you, we could talk about how, well, they, you ended up, if you bought, uh, which one was it? If you bought Twilight, no, it wasn't if you bought Twilight Princess. If you bought Wind Waker, I think it was, there was a bonus disc where you could get, um, you could play Ocarina of Time, but then also it had the, uh, oh, what the fuck was it? Like the master levels. And that was really cool and rare at the time. So there's plenty of Zelda to play on the GameCube, no doubt. I mean, you could play most of its, most of his history or most of the, the, you know, the game series history, but the games that came out originally, I want to say, and look, I love Wind Waker. Don't confuse me. I love Twilight Princess, but they're not as, in my opinion, earth shaking as they were on other, you know, as, as, as Zelda games had been on other Nintendo consoles before and since. So for that reason, I, I don't, other than Soul Calibur 2, I don't really have a Zelda game, you know, in the list. Again, they're great games, not taking anything away from them. Just like Metroid Prime. Okay, the Metroid, you know, they didn't make the list, but it's not because they don't deserve to be there. They absolutely do. It's just everybody kind of talks about them. They're kind of obvious. There's, you know, other games, though, that aren't as obvious, right? Like Beautiful Joe and, and you know, games like that, 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 could, that could have and should have been included. Um, but, you know, again, we can only do eight. But there's a lot of oddities that were available, some of them being GameCube exclusive, that I think are worthwhile looking at. So anyway, I'll mention them here, and I did, but that's your top eight. So I'm just going to run it down one more time, and then we're going to talk a little bit about emulation, then we're going to wrap this baby up. I don't want to go too much longer. Uh, Skies of Arcadia Legends, Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2 Rogue Leader, and Rogue Squadron 3, by the way, Rebel Strike. I think they're basically, they might as well be considered one game. Super Mario Sunshine, uh, Wave Race Blue Storm, Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem, Soul Calibur 2, the Resident Evil series, even if you just want to talk about number one, four, or zero, you know, like they're all worth talking about. Uh, and a num uh, and number eight, Enter the Matrix. So all of that said, how do you get to play these games today if you want to? Well, the easiest way to go about it, obviously, would be to buy a GameCube and hook it up to your TV. Uh, and then, you know, buy, like, yeah, buy the physical games. But there are a lot of options out there. There is a soft modded option, much like there was, for, much like there is now for the PlayStation 2 with Free McBoot. There's basically a Free McBoot, it's not called that, for the GameCube. And it's called Swiss. And I put a link in the show notes for it so you can check it out. Um, it's up to, it's actively developed. It's up to version zero, so it's not even version one. It's up to 0.5R878. Most games will play very well with Swiss emulation. Okay. Uh, not all. So you might have to buy some, but most games work very well with that. Uh, and that will Swiss will work. There's a special memory card you get that will allow you to put in an SD card. You have to have, um, the action replay disc. This get, this gets into a very big conversation that I'm not going to have here. But bottom line is that you are able to play 
GameCube games off of an SD card. Another way that you can do it is there is a hardware replacement for the optical disk drive, which is the dream for any sixth generation uh, console. I'd love to have a real replacement that goes at full speed, isn't reliant upon USB, okay, for the PlayStation 2, but there is for the GameCube, and it's called GC Loader. Good luck getting your hands on one. It's a little expensive, but that will allow you to replace your optical disk drive and just pop in an SD card and go to town on it. It's a great option, especially as Swiss is still actively developed and just gets better and better in what it can do. And I mean, understand that Swiss allows you to, you know, like put in other emulators, right? So on a GameCube, you can play Super Nintendo games, Nintendo games, Genesis games. I mean, there's a lot of options when it comes to that. Uh, so that, you know, the GameCube can be a lot of fun for more than GameCube games in 2020. I you know, I totally recommend owning one, but what you can also do is on your PC, you can use what's called dolphin. Now dolphin is an emulator that allows you to play GameCube games as well as, uh, Wii games on a PC. Um, actually there's dolphin, I think for Android as well, but I don't think it works as well. Anyway, that's a great option to go with as well. Again, you run into much like with Swiss where some games don't play perfectly but most do. So Dolphin might be something to look at. Of course, also you could, uh, and this is something I recently learned about, you can actually uh, crack and mod a Wii U to play GameCube games. Uh, you could also mod a Wii, an original Wii, which by design was, I mean, it was designed to play GameCube games. Um, you could, those are also options as well. If you want to go with something that has more options beyond even what a modded GameCube has, uh, but that gives you, you know, a little bit of a larger game library to access. But like, then the Wii becomes interesting for that because like I said, it was designed to, I mean, you already have the ports for the GameCube controller. It's the disc drive is designed to, you know, handle GameCube discs. Uh, that's a great option to go with as well to be able to play these absolute classics uh, that we listed off again, being able, these games still hold up. I'm doing this top eight based around the concept of games that you would still play today. And I think every single game that I listed off, you could still play today and have a great time and might even find out that, well, you know, modern games with their, uh, you know, IAP loot crates and everything else, don't have the longevity or replayability that a lot of the classics do, including from the sixth generation of consoles. So the GameCube, there's your top eight. There's your conversation really around the GameCube and why I think actually it's still something worth owning today. I know I'm not the only person to say this, uh, modern vintage gamer. I mean, there's lots of people who do great videos about, you know, how to crack, uh, you know, and put on homebrew and everything else onto a lot of these older consoles. Um, I think they're worth owning. And in another episode, a uh, little gaming grid special that I'll do or that I, that I have for other six generation consoles, we're going to get into a little bit of that conversation of why, why do you want to own these systems? I kind of talked about it with my PlayStation two uh, modding episode, but I think there's a little bit of a bigger conversation to be had kind of that we were hinting at with the GameCube and just how great the sixth generation was but I think it spans even beyond that. 
going backwards, not necessarily forwards in generations of consoles. So there you have it for the GameCube. Um, let me know if there is a system that you would like me to review. Uh, if it's the Odyssey 2, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe ColecoVision. I don't know. But if you want, you know, if you want me to cover one, feel free to email me, bbs at sovereigntech.com or hit me up in the Sovereign Tech Polytechnic Telegram group. And uh, I'm happy to do these. And I know we're all looking to have some fun uh, from home right now. And so, you know, this kind of content, I think, is very worthwhile to get in there. And you know you're always going to get something special from the man of tomorrow. And I hope you did here. I will see all of you on the next Sovereign Tech and see all of you woo, on the other side. Game over.